Well, hello everybody. It is Thursday the 30th of March. Where has March gone? Who knows? And today I'm joined by Robert and John and we're going to have a general chat about the way things have been going and where they may go. Interesting that Mr Hunt stood at the um, dispatch box a couple of weeks ago and said inflation was going to be 2.9%. He's talking about CPI. A week later, it came in at 10.4, which was a shock because it had gone up. And most interestingly, the old-fashioned measure, the retail price index currently stands at 13.8%. Interest rates were put up by a quarter of a percent. John, I think you were right because I said half percent last time and you said quarter of a percent. So uh, hats off to you. But we've nearly got negative interest rates of double digits, whereas in the States, it's a negative interest rate of about one percent. What's going to happen? I think the US is, is a lot closer to trying to fix this mess than say the UK and, and the Eurozone is. But really, in, in general terms, this is what happens when you have people who haven't a clue what they're doing in charge of, of monetary policy, because they were telling us it was transitory. They didn't see any of this coming. They were expecting it to fall. What a surprise, it's gone up. If you look at the last sort of what, 30, 40 years, you've had stuff being made in China, you've had progressively lower interest rates. And all this stuff, it's, if not once in a lifetime, but it isn't going to happen very often. So the tide has been running in one particular way. And in the end, it's led to an inflationary fireball. So now you've got massive policy problems in terms of fixing it. What do you do? Do you do you inflate it away, all this debt? I mean, I think that's what they're going to they're going to do. So your policy options are, are are very limited because if you really are going to try and get on top of inflation, you're going to create um, not only uh, a very deep recession, you may, we, we may even say a depression, because that's how bad investment decisions are worked off. But I don't think there's going to be the appetite for that. So my guess is they're going to talk about getting on top of inflation, but really I don't think the, the appetite is there. And ultimately inflation is going to be a way that they're going to deal with the, with the mess that all major central banks have, have presided over and were so ignorant of that uh, only now they can see the scale of the problem. And I think like rabbits in the headlights, they really don't know what to do. Did you see that our friend Mr Bailey had the gall to advise small businesses that really it would be very unfair on their customers if they put prices up? Yes, I did, see, I, I did see that. And I thought it was straight out of the Bailey playbook, which was he was trying to tell businesses that they shouldn't put prices up. Odd that he didn't look in the mirror and see that really this inflationary fireball is all because of his incompetence, the Monetary Policy Committee's incompetence and all incarnations of for the last, I don't know, 15 years. I find his actions increasingly staggering. In fact, I used a word that can't be repeated on the BBC about him. If I were a butcher or a hairdresser or any small business, I'd be hopping. Why, why should you work for nothing? Exactly. This was the man that took interest rates from quarter of a percent to half a percent, I don't know, what, a year ago, maybe just over a year ago. 
and said that it was a preemptive strike against inflation, which I think at the time was running at something like 7%. He should be a stand-up comedian, not the government of Bank of England. But it gets even worse. There was an article about the Liberal Treasury spokesperson, so reasonably senior person, um, who in a liberal kind of way slated the Tories on their policy of inflation, how it was causing problems for the poor, and then, of course, interest rates going up, and it was decimating the middle classes who have got mortgages. She, she was talking about the government's inflation target. Her name is Sarah Olney. Yes. She seems to be blissfully unaware that the inflation target is the Bank of England's. The Bank of England has responsibility for monetary policy. The government has responsibility for fiscal policy. Now, You'd have thought, wouldn't you, that if you had responsibility for these things, you would actually have known that. What qualifications does she have? Did she go to university and do uh, and do an economics degree? I mean, this is basic stuff. And it was changed, quite rightly, by Brown in 1997. What hope have we got? In answer to your question, she probably did go to university and got a degree in economics, which is why she knows nothing about it in the real world. <laughs> in her defence, we have said for a long time that Actually, whilst the government and the Bank of England are allegedly independent of each other, that's not quite reality, as I understand it. In the real world, I'm sure conversations happen. But the fact of the matter is that the inflation target is the responsibility of the Bank of England. The Bank of England warned yesterday that there could be another guilt market shock, but twice as bad as the last one, and that people should be prepared for that, which again is very worrying. I have to say that if I held long-dated fixed interest investments, be it corporate bonds or government stocks, I think I would be moving out of those pretty rapidly. I mean, I, I'm staggered that the there was a index-linked guilt for 2073, 50 years in advance, which has fallen 80% in value from a secure investment. Well, the entire market's been distorted by QE and crackpot interest rates. So it's just another example of what happens when you artificially prevent what should happen. If you artificially prevent for too long, what you end up with are excesses everywhere, you know, excess all areas, and then it becomes a problem that um, is, is ultimately uncontrollable. And I think this is where, I mean, we could go back longer than 15 years, but let's just go back to the financial crisis. We are now approaching a point where all the nonsense, all the unconventional things that they have done as they've meddled in financial markets and tried to prevent what they didn't want to happen happening, they're spinning plates and now the plates are starting to drop. I think there's a real issue in the private client financial world where uh, many advisors and many clients perceive the word bond to be safer than other things because it's the word bond and as duncan's just said you know that index link stocks it's fallen by 80 percent yeah it's staggering i mean when we started out in this industry 35 years ago you had low risk investments and low risk investments were in typically bonds both government and corporate but really as we've said for the last five seven eight years since interest rates hit a 300 year low those type of investments under the wrong circumstances 
are actually high-risk investments. It's why I want to hold, for my clients, Nestle. It's paid a dividend for 150 years. It would be unfortunate if on your watch, that company stopped paying its dividend. To me, you have to embrace the risk associated with equity investment in order to get on uh, and make your capital work during the next 10 years or so, unless bonds are significantly re-rated. But at the moment, bonds look very, very vulnerable. And if, as we think, that inflation is likely to be stubbornly high, interest rates will have to keep on going up. And therefore, there is likely to be another reduction in the capital value of bonds. And the problem is, is that you get all these blended portfolios. We always spoke about the 60-40 portfolio, 60% equities being risk, 40% fixed interest being lower risk. And you have all these cautious managed funds and all sorts of funds with profit funds, et cetera, et cetera. They all have an element of bonds. They, all these these bonds, which have got 50 years to go, or, or perpetual bonds, which just go on forever, somebody's holding those. Though, I mean, we've, we've had Credit Suisse effectively go bust. We're not allowed to call it a bailout, but in all sense... Stop, stop that talk. What a bailout. <laughs> but, but there are $260 billion worth of cocoa bonds, those... 81 bonds out there somebody holds them is it you it's not us i remember some years ago lloyd's bank issuing cocoa bonds and john saying at the time we don't want to have any of those absolutely right mr newson well somebody's lost 17 billion dollars on credit suisse cocoa bonds well a group of people thanks yeah well the thing the thing was with with, with contingent bonds was that at the, at the worst possible time they reverted uh, to, to becoming equity. So the dilution was going to be massive. Of course, in this particular case, and I guess there are going to be legal challenges, the cocoa bonds actually didn't even become equity. They, um, they missed that stage out and just became worthless. And for some odd reason, they've actually bailed out the holders of the, of the ordinary equity. You're um, at it now, bailout. <laughs> no, it was not a bailout. No, that lady from the Swiss Treasury person said that it wasn't a bailout. Exactly. It just looked like a bailout, smelt like a bailout, but it wasn't a bailout. Yeah. Let's just talk about property for a, a short while. Duncan, repeat after me, property always goes up. But <laughs> what you said earlier, before we started recording, was that in San Francisco, which was a property hotspot, 30% of property is vacant. Yes. In the same article, I saw that it was not dissimilar in, in Manhattan. A, a bit lower, I think it was around the 20% mark of offices just had no takers. So you're, you're selling all your crane shares? It just shows what's going on out there. And that, I mean, you wonder in a hotspot like San Francisco, what is the, the loan to value ratios? That's my guess says that there will be a lot of decent office blocks that will be working on, on quite a thin sliver of equity. And you've had now substantial rises in interest rates. So is there any equity left in them? It wouldn't surprise me if the situation in those kind of locations was going to get very, very messy. Yeah. 
I, I think there's a golden opportunity to convert these office blocks back into small residential flats, one, two bedroom flats. I think that's an ideal situation. I'm not sure about in America, but in, in this country, because it replenishes the council's stock of these type of properties, which are, are needed so badly. The, the trouble, though, with that is that it's, as I understand it, it's quite expensive to convert office is accommodation it? to um, to residential yeah. as, a, as a general rule. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day and they bought a major property in Harrogate with a top tenant, commercial, and they've done it for a yield of four and a quarter percent. I don't see how that can make sense when you've got the retail price index uh, ripping along at 13.8%. Yes. I mean, one doesn't know whether there was a bit of a taster rate going on to start with or what any kind of clauses in there in terms of, of rent increases. But certainly in bold terms, that's um, that's a punchy yield. It is. And then you think about all the banks which have potentially lent on all these type of deals. And do we need to do more stress testing? Current stress testing, has it been equivalent to driving a dinky toy over the Humber Bridge? Well, we'll get to find out. But to me, the simple thing is, don't own bank shares. Andrew Bailey says that the banking system is resilient. Oh, he must be right. I think. Going by his track record, it's obviously true. In Bailey, we trust. Correct. Janet Yellen said something similar as well. But then again, they've just had two banks go pop, haven't they? Anyway, I'm sure she's. I'm sure she's on the case. So thank you, John, and thank you, Duncan, for your insightful comments in this latest podcast. We are about to go into a new tax year. So there's a bit of last minute action from those people who are pushing ISAs, etc. We've already done ours, which wouldn't surprise our clients. We talked about inflation. My measure of inflation is when Mrs. Ash comes home with the shopping basket and she tells me that bell peppers have gone through the roof, as have pasta. Uh, they won't be the only things, and I'm sure everybody who goes food shopping will will be noticing this. We also talked about the fact that potentially there could be a guilt market shock in the offing. We don't hold long-dated guilts. We don't hold long-dated corporate bonds. There's an obvious reason why. And then we moved on to property. Um, and I think any regular listener to this podcast will know our views on, on particularly on commercial property, but Resi too. It's one thing owning a property in which you live. It's another thing owning properties to try and make a living out of. Anyway, we look forward to you listening to us next time round. And if you could spread the word, we'd be grateful. Many thanks and happy Easter. This material shouldn't be considered as advice or an investment recommendation. You should consult an advisor regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority prior to making investment decisions. All investments carry a degree of risk. The value of any investment or income received from it can go up as well as down and you may not get back the amount invested. Information recorded within this podcast was accurate at the time of recording.